Hello, you guys. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. I hope you all are having a great week so far. So as you can tell by the title of today's episode, we are talking about the unsolved disappearance of 27-year-old Brian Schaefer. Like I said, Brian was 27 years old when he went missing on April 1st of 2006 in Columbus, Ohio. This case has gotten a pretty decent amount of media coverage, and it's also been highly requested by you guys in my emails and DMs. So I'm very interested to see what theories you guys have for this case, because I know for me, this is one of those cases where I just don't really know what I believe and what I think. I do know that there are a lot of theories in this case, and we're going to go through all of them but as far as like I believe like this specific thing happened it's just not one of those cases for me so I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it and before we get started and get into it I do want to take a minute and go through the theories for the Kimberly Moreau case that we covered two weeks ago we didn't get a chance to cover those theories last week so we are going to do that right now before we get started with today's episode so if you have not listened to the Kimberly Moreau episode yet you can either skip ahead for this part and go back and listen to that episode later, but if you have listened to it, I do want to go through a couple of the theories real quick. So the first theory is from someone who states, quote, my theory is that sometime during her night out with her friend and the older guys, Kimberly was tipped off that Mike would or could be waiting for her at her house. She didn't want to be seen with the older guys, so that is why she asked to be dropped off half a mile from her house and that she would have walked. I think it's possible either another criminal saw an opportune moment or Mike himself acted. I really do think that that is a great theory. I know last or two weeks ago when we did this case, we talked about the theory of, you know, Mike possibly being the one waiting for her at her house, considering the fact that, you know, that was her boyfriend and they just had this big fight and she missed prom to go off with these friends of hers. Um, So I think it's definitely possible that Mike was there. My only thing about this is just how I question how this would have played out. You know, if Kimberly was walking home and Mike was there? Did Mike lure her into his car and drive off with her somewhere? Did he hit her over the head with something? I know it's not the most pleasant thing to think about, but no stone left unturned here. And because I do think that if there was an altercation outside of Kimberly's home, you know, she was right outside of her house. Her whole family was inside that house. So I think it's very possible if there was a big altercation, her family would have heard it. So I think it's just interesting to think about how that theory could have played out. So moving on to the second theory, which is like a theory slash question that says, quote, hi, my question is who is the other 25 year old man and could he possibly be a suspect? We only heard the statement from the one, but there were two of them that night that were with Kimberly. I agree with you that Rhonda definitely has to know more than she is saying. Maybe her and Kimberly got into a fight that night and Kimberly left from whatever they were all hanging out at. And afterwards, Rhonda and the two men went to look for her, but were unsuccessful. So that's why she made up a story, end quote. Again, I think that that's a a very good theory. Um, I definitely, I never thought about that. The fact that Rhonda and Kimberly could have kind of been bickering or fighting if they were fighting over the guys that they were hanging out with or they were fighting over something else. And that could have led to Kimberly wanting to be left alone and walking off and going off by herself, which is never a good idea. So I definitely think that that's a good theory. But what I will say, unfortunately, from what I have learned since 
that vid- or since that episode was posted is that Rhonda unfortunately passed away. I believe she passed away in 2009. So now we will never be able to have the possible answers that she carried with her throughout her life um, because unfortunately she is no longer here. So this last theory is very interesting to me because this theory is unlike anything that I have ever experienced before on Killer Instinct or even before Killer Instinct. And it is an email from someone who basically states that, you know, they grew up in the same town as Kimberly. They knew the family well, they knew Kimberly well, and they have a theory of their own. So this person says, quote, I have always had my own theory about what happened, but everyone thinks that I am crazy. Like I said, we were all good friends and the same age, so we always would stay at each other's houses. I remember one night walking into her house with her dad and her dad was trashed, drunk as hell, but that was a normal thing. He was slash is an alcoholic. That night, I saw him hit her over the head so hard and slammed her head into the wall by the entrance to the door. I went home. I have a theory that maybe he hit her one too many times and killed her. Just so happened to be a new addition, a garage with a cement slab was put in and a huge flower garden, all within a couple years of her passing. What if he put her there? No one's going to blame the father that is always on the news and hanging flyers every day and still doing searches all over the place. There is also a guy we graduated with named John Bates. He has a completely different story of the events that happened that night. He has told police, but nothing was done. I guess he was with her that night. There are so many things that people know in this town, but it's all very hush-hush. Just so happened that Richard got married last year to a girl who is 25 slash 30 years younger than him. And just for context, Richard, to refresh your memory, is Kimberly's father. Um, They met when she showed up to do a search and they fell in love and got married 10 days later. And I will give you a guess on what her name is, dot, 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 Kim. I think she is after Richard's money, but what do I know? So now there is another Kim Moreau in this small town. She also made Richard move from that house. This person goes on to say, Kim was a beautiful girl, so tall, she had so much going for her but got into the wrong crowd. They all did heavy drugs. Back then it was cocaine. I hope that someday the truth comes out and her body is found so her sisters can have some closure, end quote. So when I read this, this was definitely astonishing to me personally because, you know, you can say so many things being an outsider and not really knowing someone or being in someone's inner circle like that. And when you get information from someone who's like in that circle and knows those people, it's definitely, it hits you a little bit differently. Now, does that mean that this is the end all be all? We've cracked the case. No, this that's not what this means. But I definitely think it is interesting because it is a theory that I did not bring forward to you guys because it is a theory that I never thought of. And I think in reading that email, it really made me go back and think because it made me think about the fact that, again, we always say no stone left unturned. And if you think about the details of this and how I said in the episode that Richard has really been the one who's been the driving force behind this case. He's really been leading this case in the investigation and the interviews that he's been doing. And, you know, he has friends in the police department. And so it is interesting getting a different perspective on it and seeing it from a completely different light. Again, I think anything is possible in this case. I'm not ruling out a single thing. And seeing that just added one more theory into this. And um, I don't, you know, you never want to blame the parent. You never do because they're going through something so unimaginable and so heartbreaking if they are innocent. 
And in a case like this, it's just, you never want to leave a stone left unturned. When I did all of my research, there was never anyone who had one bad thing to say about Richard because he's out there and he's posting the flyers and he's doing all of these things. And maybe sometimes we just forget that sometimes the answers are right in front of us. And again, I'm not saying that he, we've solved the case and this is it. And this is what happened. But, you know, I definitely think that we should look at this from every single possible angle. So I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about it. So if you have any counter theories that you want to let me know about, definitely email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. That is where you can email me for all of your theories or case suggestions. Again, that is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. With that being said, we are going to move on to today's case about Brian Schaefer. So let's just get right on into it today. So Brian Schaefer was born on February 25th of 1979 in Pinkerton, Ohio, and he was born to his parents, Randy and Renee Schaefer. And he was the oldest of two sons. He had a brother named Derek, and he graduated from high school in 1997. And after graduating high school, he ended up attending Ohio State University to study as an undergraduate. And after six years of studying there, he graduated and moved on to go to medical school. Brian had a degree in microbiology, so he was extremely, extremely smart. Everyone who knew him said he was such a brilliant man and had such a bright future ahead of him. Like I said, he was going to med school and he was a very good looking guy, very handsome, and just definitely seemed to have everything going for him. And that's what I realized when doing my research is that everyone always said, there was the one thing that everyone kept repeating is Brian had everything going for him. He had such a bright future ahead of him, and it's so tragically sad that that was all unfortunately cut short. So Brian started his journey in medical school in 2004. He attended the Ohio State University College of Medicine, and he was doing really well in his classes. He was getting great grades. He also met an amazing woman for him. This woman's name is Alexis Wagner, and her and Brian met in medical school. She was also studying to become a doctor, and the two of them just really hit it off. They really loved each other and had a great relationship, and they were very serious, and we will get to that in a little bit as far as more so into their relationship, but I do want to point out that there was something very unfortunately tragic that happened in Brian's life, and that was that during his second year of graduate school, during his second year of medical school, Brian's mother, Renee, unfortunately ended up passing away in 2006 from a very rare form of cancer. Renee's death was incredibly hard on Brian. Obviously, he just lost his mother. Brian was the type of guy where he wanted to make it seem like everything was okay and that he was okay and he didn't like being too vulnerable. So when his mother's death happened, it was very clear to his friends and the people that were closest to him, like Alexis, that he was struggling like anyone would. He just went through one of the biggest losses in his life, but he definitely did try to put on a brave face and make it seem like he was okay. So Brian and Alexis had actually made plans to go to Miami, Florida together for spring break in 2006. The trip was going to occur only one month after Brian's mother had actually passed away. So they were looking forward to being able to kind of get away and decompress and really spend some quality time together. And a lot of people actually thought that Brian was going to be proposing to Alexis on this trip. So it was a really big deal and they were both really excited 
excited about it. Alexis was super excited. Brian was thrilled to finally just be able to decompress and they could spend time together. So that was the plan. Brian and Alexis had scheduled their flights to be on April 3rd, 2006. So let's back up a couple days prior and talk about what happened on March 31st, 2006. So Friday, March 31st was the day where everyone was taking their final exams before they were heading off to spring break. And so after Brian had finished the test that he had to take, he was so excited that it was finally all done. He had worked so hard and studied so hard that he was just excited for it all to be over. So he had actually made plans with his brother Derek and Derek's wife, and they were all supposed to hang out together that night. But after getting out of class, Brian had reached out to Derek and Derek had actually canceled their plans. So instead of hanging out with Derek, Brian had reached out and made plans with another friend of his. And this friend is named William Florence and he goes by the name Clint. So Brian had reached out to William and the two of them agreed that they were going to go out and kind of have a little mini celebration that spring break has officially begun. So after reaching out to Clint, Brian went and had dinner with his dad, Randy. And while they were at dinner, Randy says that the only thing that he noticed is that Brian looked extremely exhausted. He looked very just worn down and tired. And he thought that that was a result of the studying that he had been doing for the test that he had to take that day. And so when Brian told Randy that he was going out, Randy was not necessarily nervous, but knew that it would be better for Brian if he just stayed at home instead of going out that night but he also knew that Brian was 27 he was gonna do what he wanted to do so he didn't really say anything and kept his concerns to himself at about 9 o'clock p.m on March 31st is when Brian ended up meeting up with Clint at a bar called the Ugly Tuna Saluna now this is a restaurant and bar from what I can understand and what has to happen in order for you to get to the bar area is you have to take an escalator so you take an escalator up to the bar area which is on the the second floor and I believe the restaurant is on the first floor and at about 10 o'clock p.m. Brian had called Alexis and the two of them had you know just kind of like a good night conversation to close out the night before Brian went off and had the rest of his night with Clint and according to Alexis she said that Brian sounded completely fine there was nothing concerning about his tone of voice he didn't seem nervous he didn't seem anything out of the ordinary so she thought everything was fine so Clint said while they stayed at the Ugly Tuna for a little bit, they ended up doing some shots. So they were drinking a good amount this night. And after doing what Clint said was anywhere from three to five shots, they ended up moving on to a couple other bars on the street. So they ended up doing a little bit of bar hopping this night. While they were bar hopping, it reached about to be midnight. And around this time is when Clint and Brian ended up running in to one of Clint's friends. And this woman is a woman named Meredith Reed. And the three of them all started hanging out together and they were having a great time and Meredith offered to drive Clint and Brian back to the ugly tuna bar that they were initially drinking at so they could finish up the night because there was a live band performing for a little bit longer at the ugly tuna so all three of them decided it would be a good idea to go over and just kind of finish the night off there so that's what they ended up doing. So there's actually security camera footage of Brian, Clint, and Meredith re-entering the ugly tuna saluna at about 1 15 a.m on now what is april 1st of 2006 
The security camera footage basically just shows Brian, Meredith, and Clint riding up the escalator to the second floor of the bar. According to Clint, he said when they went back to the ugly tuna, Clint actually saw a group of people that he was familiar with and that he was friends with, and so him, Meredith, and Brian kind of all merged together with this other group of Clint's friends, and it turned into kind of one big group of people. So this is where things get a little confusing because Brian is seen again on security camera footage at about 1.55 a.m. standing outside of the Ugly Tuna talking to two women. The security footage shows that after Brian had this conversation with these women, he is seen walking back into the Ugly Tuna. So he is seen literally walking back into the bar, but no one has seen him since. Okay, we're gonna take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So that is where this whole thing gets really, really bizarre because Brian is seen walking into the bar, but he has never been seen walking out of it again. So because it was so late, the Ugly Tuna was reaching its last call. So the bar was closing. And according to Clint, he said that him and Meredith looked around for Brian, but they weren't able to find him. They called his cell phone a couple times, you know, searched the bar, but they weren't able to find him. So they just kind of figured that he might have gone home on his own. So they just figured that he was doing his own thing and it was last call. So it was very chaotic. You know, everyone's trying to leave at once. It's a very, a lot of commotion going on. So if you've ever been in a bar at, at last call, you kind of understand where it kind of can get very chaotic. Now, do I believe that that is a good excuse to leave your drunk friend? No, I don't. I think that if you go together, you stay together, period. That's it. That's just how I roll. It's how I think. But I do understand the chaos that could happen at last call and possibly thinking, well, maybe did he go home? Did he not? So according to Clint, he said that him and Meredith just assumed that Brian had gone home on his own and then ended up leaving the bar without him. So let's just reiterate. Let's summarize what just happened real quick. So Brian goes out with Clint. They start off at the Ugly Tuna. They do a couple shots, continue bar hopping throughout the night. At about midnight, they meet up with Clint's friend Meredith at a different bar who says that they should go back to the Ugly Tuna to watch a live band perform. While they're back at the Ugly Tuna, Clint ends up running into another group of friends of his, which enhances the size number of the group that they are initially with to begin with. And Brian ends up walking off. Brian is seen with Clinton Meredith at 1.15 entering the Ugly Tuna and again at 1.55 outside of the bar talking to two women and then seen going back into the bar again. After he's seen going back into the bar, Clint says that he can't find him anywhere. He tries calling him. He's not answering, which is when Clint and Meredith decide to leave the bar together because it is last call and the bar is closing. So as far as we are aware and as 
far as what the public knows, the last time Brian is ever seen is on that security camera footage at 1.55 a.m. walking back in to the Ugly Tuna. So in the following days, the next couple days, which were Saturday and Sunday, Randy and Alexis were constantly trying to get in contact with Brian. They were calling his cell phone. I think even Randy went over to his apartment to see if his car was there, which it was, and everything seemed to be in place in his apartment. So on Monday, which was when Alexis and Brian were supposed to leave for their flight, Alexis actually went to the airport in hopes that Brian would end up showing up and meeting her there and maybe something just happened and he couldn't get in contact with her, but he was going to meet her there so they could go on their trip together, but that never happened. And that is when Randy and Alexis decided to file a missing persons report for Brian. So police started their search at the Ugly Tuna Saluna, which is where Brian was last seen. And luckily the Ugly Tuna, like I said, did have security cameras in place and the bars next to them had security cameras in place. So police did a full search of all of the security camera footage from that night. But the only footage they were able to find of Brian was him entering the bar at 115 with Clinton Meredith and once again at 155 on his own. So there are technically two exits at the Ugly Tuna. And the first one is the entrance and exit for the general public. It's the same entrance and exit. It's like the same door. The same way they go in is the same way they go out. And that is used for the general public. Now there is a service door and this service door is on the first level. And like I said, the bar is on the second level. So you have to take an escalator to get up there. But on the first level, there is a service door. And when you opened up the service door at this time, it just was, you open the door onto a construction site. Basically, there was so much construction going on at this time. And police and other workers have come out and said, there's no reason that anyone would need to use that door. There's no reason that anyone would want to use that door. Police have also come out and said that trying to get out of that construction site would be challenging for anyone, even sober. So imagine being intoxicated and trying to get out of that construction zone would be extremely, extremely difficult and challenging. It is possible though that Brian could have found that door and just in his intoxicated drunken state, he just decided to use that door to get out of the bar and he ended up in the construction site by accident. That is possible. But what's unfortunate about the service door is that it was one of the very few places in the Ugly Tuna that did not have any security cameras on it. So if Brian would have used that door as an exit, there would be no footage to show that that was the case. Randy, Brian's father, had actually gone to a psychic and the psychic told him that Brian's body was dumped into a body of water. So because of that, Randy and Brian's brother, Derek, spent hours searching the bridges and the surrounding areas of the river that flows through Columbus and was about a mile from Brian's apartment. But even in doing all of that searching, they were unable to find any trace of Brian anywhere. So police, you know, they did a lot with this investigation. They brought in search dogs, they scoured the area, they searched through security camera footage, and they also gave everyone a lie detector test who was with Brian that night or possibly could have been with Brian that night. And the only person who refused to take a lie detector test that was with Brian that night is Clint. Now, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about this because they think, you know, if you're innocent, just take the test and it'll prove that you're innocent. And it's suspicious to kind of put yourself in a position where you refuse to take a lie detector test over something that is to this volume. And as well as refusing to take a lie detector test, he also immediately lawyered up. He did not want to talk to any police without getting a lawyer. Now, I do want to say that even though a lot of people do deem this behavior as suspicious, this does not prove whether or not Clint is innocent or guilty whatsoever. 
whatsoever. It is bizarre behavior. It is a little weird. It does kind of make you raise your eyebrows and tilt your head sideways a little bit to be like, why wouldn't you just take this? But at the same time, that doesn't prove that he is guilty. Police also searched Brian's apartment because they thought, well, maybe there was a robbery. You know, maybe Brian did go home by himself, but he ended up getting robbed and something bad could have happened. But when they searched his apartment, there were no belongings missing. There was nothing of value missing. There didn't look like there was a forced entry or any signs of a struggle. So it led police to believe more so that Brian did not end up back at his apartment that night. Police also looked at Brian's cell phone records and his bank accounts, trying to see if there was any activity on either of them, but that was not the case. Ever since he has disappeared, there has been no activity coming from his cell phone or his bank accounts. However, I will say that every night after Brian's disappearance, Alexis would call Brian. Every single night she would call Brian in hopes that he would answer this time. And what would happen is his phone would go straight to voicemail every time, which led Alexis and investigators to believe that his phone was just completely off. The only reason that your phone would go straight to voicemail is if you declined it right away or if your phone was off or it was dead. So it made police believe that his phone was either off or dead. And it wasn't until six months after his disappearance that Alexis ended up calling Brian's phone. And this time it actually rang and it rang three times and then it went straight to voicemail. But that had never happened before. Usually when Alexis would call, like I said, it would just go straight to voicemail. So Alexis ended up getting in contact with police. And when she did this, police were able to see where his phone was last pinged. And police were able to figure out that the last ping made off of his phone was coming from a cell phone tower in a town called Hilliard. And this was about 14 miles northwest of Columbus, Ohio, which is very, very bizarre. There, it just, why would his cell phone be 14 miles away? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But to this day, Brian's cell phone has never been recovered. Like I was saying in the beginning, this case has gotten a lot of media attention just because of the bizarre series of events that happened that night. Brian walked into a bar and was never seen walking out again. And it just, no one can really wrap their head around it. No one can understand it. And like I said in the beginning, I don't even know what theory I really believe, but Brandy, Brian's father, never stopped his search for his son. And he was always searching for new leads, trying to find different answers, and really, really trying to bring his son and his family closure and justice. And unfortunately, in 2008, which was two and a half years after Brian's disappearance, there was actually a thunderstorm going on in Baltimore, Maryland, where Randy was living. And while he was there, there, during this thunderstorm, he walked outside to try to move some of the debris that was on his property. And while he was doing that, there was actually a tree that fell and struck him and ended up killing him. So he ended up dying on September 14th, 2008. So now not only does Derek, Brian's brother, have to deal with the passing of both of his parents, he also has to deal with the unsolved disappearance of his brother. In less than one month, April 1st, 2020, will be the 14-year anniversary of Brian's disappearance, and there are multiple theories in this case that we're about to go through, and I'm very, very interested to see what you guys have to say about them and what you guys think. So the first theory in this case is that Brian disappeared off of his own free will, and let me explain. Some people really do believe that Brian wanted to start a new life. They think that he wanted to start fresh and his mother's funeral was held only 25 days before his disappearance. And some people think that it's just too close of a coincidence. Some people think that maybe the pressure of his 
the school his schooling and his mother's passing was too much for him and the possibility of getting engaged was a lot to take in all at once so a lot of people think that maybe in order to relieve some of that pressure he decided the best thing to do for himself was to just pack up move and start a new life and a lot of people think this because on brian's myspace page there's actually something that he wrote on there and it's a couple sentences that i'm going to read to you and it says quote i really love music and this whole doctor thing is really just a job only temporary until i get my band together and put out a record i want to own an island someday or at least a beach so i can listen to buffett all day and drink margaritas with my senorita end quote and a big factor in this theory is that a lot of people believe this to be true because Brian has never been found to this day. His belongings haven't been found. Him himself hasn't been found. He hasn't been seen. So a lot of people think that he was able to just kind of get away with this whole thing and never be seen again. I do want to say about the MySpace thing, to me, that does not prove one way or the other that he wanted to start a new life. Um, I do know that in the research that I did, he loved music and he did want to start a band and his dream, his passion was to be in a band and create records and he loved Jimmy Buffett and but to me that little MySpace blurb does not prove to me that he you know really did pack up and start a new life and the main reason I have a problem with this theory is because Brian was intoxicated this night. He was extremely intoxicated. And so for him to have carried out such a detailed and meticulous plan, if he really didn't ever want to be found again, there is so much planning that needs to be involved in that. And I don't think that he would have been able to pull that off on a drunk night with his friends, just leaving at two in the morning and going off intoxicated and never being seen again. To me, that just doesn't sit right with me. I don't fully believe that that is the case, but who knows? I mean, I'm very interested to see what you guys have to think about that. If you guys think that he ran off on his own free will and started a new life somewhere, it's very, it's possible. It's not impossible. None of these are impossible, but that one just doesn't seem very likely to me if he was... Yeah, I just, I don't know about that one. So the second theory in this case is that Brian did leave the Ugly Tuna Bar, whether that was through the service door or it was just undetected on the main entrance and exit to the general public. But when he left, he ended up getting in an accident is basically the theory. And whether that was he got into a bar fight after leaving the bar or whether that was he got lost in the construction zone. But again, I mean, my problem with this theory is that he's never been found. His body's never been found. And that is my big theory with the construction zone, which is my third theory that I have here is that he went out the service door and got stuck in the construction zone. My problem with this theory is that if that were true and if Brian, you know, was stumbling and got stuck somewhere or something, he hit his head on something, he would have been found. Someone probably would have found him if he, you know, just waited there a couple more hours until the next day. Someone probably would have seen him and found him. So that's why I'm not too certain about this you know, construction zone theory. I think that if this were to happen, someone would have heard something or seen something and he possibly would have been found. So then there is the theory that Clint is more involved in Brian's disappearance than he is letting on. A lot of people believe that because he refuses to take the lie detector test and because he lawyered up so quickly that possibly he could have had more to do with it than he is saying or knows more than he is letting on. A little sub theory in this is that if him and Brian were doing drugs together that night and 
and Clint was worried that police would find out and didn't want police to know, and that's why he lawyered up. But let's say they were doing drugs together that night, and maybe Brian reacted negatively to the drugs, or that his body reacted negatively to the drugs. And, you know, Clint doesn't really have the best reputation when it comes to Brian's family. Brian's family does believe that Clint knows way more than he is letting on and way more that he is showing. They say that if Brian were to walk off somewhere, he probably would have told Clint where he was going. And so because of that, Brian's family believes that Clint probably knows what direction Brian was trying to head in that specific night. While I was doing my research and going through some of the comments on the videos that I watched, there were a couple of interesting theories as well that I just want to kind of throw out there just to kind of get your, just to kind of get you thinking about them a little bit. And one of those was the fact that what if Brian had gotten into an altercation with someone at the bar, at the Ugly Tuna, someone who either worked there or knew someone who worked there and his body ended up in the freezer. But again, when I first read that, I was like, oh, well, if his body ended up in the freezer, someone definitely would have known about it and seen it most likely. But the way that this theory kept going when this person kept explaining it is that what if his body was dismembered and put into the freezer and that is why no one had been able to find him. So that's one theory. And then another one that I read is that what if, again, he got into an altercation with someone at the bar and his body was again either dismembered or just murdered before he ever left the bar and placed into a suitcase. I know it's so morbid and you never want to think about those types of situations or those types of scenarios, but again, no stone left unturned and I just think it's important to look at every single possible angle that we can. So with that being said, those are all the theories that I have and I'm very interested to see what you guys have to say about it. So definitely let me know if you're listening to me on my podcast or watching me on my channel. If you're, you can leave it in the comments below. If you're listening, you can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. We'll go over the theories next week. With that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. I'm so, so interested to see what you guys have to say about this case. This family deserves answers and justice. Derek deserves answers and justice. He has been through unimaginable things. And so I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. So that is all for me today, you guys. I will be back next week with a brand new episode of Killer Instinct. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. I will see you in a few days. Stay safe, guys.